Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Today on the podcast, we have with us Clara McGregor. Clara is an actress, producer, and model, and the oldest of Ewan McGregor's four daughters. She studied photography at NYU and is most proud of starting her own production company called Deux Dames Entertainment. So Clara, we are so excited for you to come onto our podcast. Thank you so much for opening up with your story today. Of course, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited. So what I'd like to start with is earlier on your childhood, you mentioned that you experienced severe anxiety. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you remember, how it manifested and when it started? You know, I think I've had anxiety ever since I can remember. It's just, I, I didn't really know. It's funny kind of growing up as a kid that um, other people also, or that um, other people didn't feel that way. Like that I, you know, that I was... I thought I was just that that was the norm for everyone. And my first memories of it really, there was a few things. One thing is I was really afraid of the dark and not in the sense of like, oh, that's normal. You're a little kid. It was like there was someone in my room. There was someone breaking into the house. I was going to get kidnapped. Like I couldn't fall asleep. It was really hard for me to fall asleep at night. You know, I'd hear sirens outside and I'd be like you know something horrific has happened and my brain would go to very dark places when I was very young um and then it kind of morphed into separation anxiety from my parents um I had to be really close by I know you know my my dad traveled a lot as a as a, when I was growing up but my mom um less so but there were times when they would travel together and I was I couldn't eat or sleep. And I, you know, I was, I was like 10 or 11 at that point, And I couldn't have sleepovers with friends. I couldn't go to summer camp. Just the thought of not being close to my parents was really bad. And I remember we were traveling one time, we were in Africa and um, the house we were staying in, there were two floors. My room was right down the flight of stairs that led to my parents' room. Just, and I, I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't, um, be a floor but you know below them that that felt too too much so those are really my kind of initial memories with anxiety and what do you remember uh what helped in terms of what your family would say or what they would do you know i i'm really grateful for both my parents and especially my mom because she um over the years and as I've grown up and through all of this has really made an effort to educate herself and um, find the best ways to help me, which at first she didn't have those tools, you know, like this wasn't mental health wasn't talked about. My mom is also French. So there was a lot of the mentality that was like, you know, 
pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just get over it. Like you just, you're never going to get over it if you don't just do it. So I would go to summer camp, for example, and I'd get there and my anxiety was crazy. I'd, I'd have to go home. Like the days would go by and I just was a complete wreck and all I wanted was to go home. But my mom thought at the time it was best for me to stick it out, for example, because she was like, then you'll get over it. And I totally understand where that thought process came from. But that's what my mom realizes now and what I realize now that wasn't what was going to help me. Like I needed someone to be like, you know what, if you want to go home, you'll go home, just give it another few hours, you know, and then if I really needed to, to get myself out of that situation. Um, But over the, you know, my mom just read a lot of books and did a lot of research and put me in therapy really young in London when it was still something so taboo. Like I, it wasn't talked about, especially in Britain where I was growing up, like it, it had such a different thing. And so I did go to therapy. Um you know, starting at around 10 and or 11 in London, which then continued once I went to LA. So they, they were just really supportive, but also we kind of grew together with learning about mental health, which is something that both my parents had experienced too. It's just like, it wasn't an, a conversation. It wasn't something that people, you know, had just had the tools to naturally. And in that context, so I know you said your father dealt with addiction before you were six and has been sober since. So from from where you stand now, looking back, how do you think this impacted you as a child? What did you pick up on? What did you notice around you? And does it relate to your anxiety? I mean, you know, I think um, those first six years of, of your life are so instrumental and can really kind of dictate <laughs> the rest of your life in many ways, especially with mental health and with trauma and stuff. And, um, you know, it's all pretty blurry, but I just remember it was, it was chaotic. I kind of didn't know what moods my dad was going to be in and, or if he was going to be really happy or really sad or really angry. And just as a kid, like that was just kind of confusing when someone is an addict, they go through all these ups and downs and my parents were fighting back then, you know, as as anyone would. And um, and also he would kind of disappear for a few days. And so I, you know, I want to talk less about his, what he was going through, and what he was doing. But that impacted me just that I think I had, I think that definitely triggered my separation anxiety because my dad got sober and he was a completely, I mean, and still is a completely different man and it has been consistently you know <laughs> for the most part an incredible father to me so my my separation anxiety i think really stemmed from not really knowing where my dad was at or not knowing where my mom was at cuz she was also dealing with all of that at the time and so then i just felt like i needed to be close to them all the time and i'm sure subconsciously i worried for my dad you know and i worried for my mom and so that was really put at ease when my dad got sober but I still was left with I think a lot of that anxiety and we can talk about that a little bit more right because people are definitely shaped by earlier influences but it's often complex right and multifactorial um, so in the course of your therapy and working with a provider were you ever diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or anything else mental health related so with the therapist I saw in London, I don't, I, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure it was brought up. I don't, I honestly don't remember if it was like a, 
a diagnosis. But it's funny because it was always talked about in therapy. And, you know, all my therapists always, you know, you have anxiety, you have anxiety. But the word disorder wasn't brought into that to, for a long time. Like, it was just like, oh, it's anxiety, you're anxious. And then when I was around 21, 22, at 21, I suppose, maybe even, no, yeah, 21, um, I finally went to see a psychiatrist because um, I couldn't deal with my anxiety and I was in this abusive relationship, which I know we'll touch upon in a little bit, but um, I couldn't get out of it and I was stuck and I and I just couldn't deal with the anxiety. And finally he looked at me and he goes, and it was the first time I'd heard it. I, he looked at me and he said, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to. It's not something you are, just need to endure for the rest of your life. And what he said was, you know, you can, there's things you can do about this. And obviously therapy is a big one, but he was like, there's medication. And he prescribed me uh, Lexapro, which I'd never been on. I'd never thought I needed medication for it. I just wasn't made aware that this was even a thing really. Um, and that was just a few years ago, you know? And um, so I went on Lexapro and my life changed and it didn't just change because of the little pill, but opened up some room in my clustered brain to be able to take the further steps to to work on myself and also got me out I think I got myself out but it helped me gain perspective and get out of a really horrible situation with my ex um and so I I have to give a lot of credit to to um certain kinds of medications the right one for you and obviously there that is a huge privilege in itself to be able to have access to those and to be able to go see a psychiatrist and get those prescriptions and there's a, a huge amount to do in this country because you know most people don't have access to that or to therapy or any kind of mental health guidance so i definitely acknowledge that that was a huge privilege um and one I'm incredibly grateful for because that that really helped. And that's the first time I was like, okay, this this is an illness. It's a disorder. There's nothing that can. It's not just gonna like go away one morning. It takes work, and it can take sometimes help from from a doctor. You know. Yeah, and the, what you said really resonated, right? Which is you don't need to live this way. You know, that's what we often are teaching people in each session, right? In each encounter. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, that people don't have to live with severe anxiety where it's a struggle every day. And even, you know, you experienced being in therapy, but it didn't, it might've helped, right? The struggle around the anxiety and, and to work through it. But sometimes it's not the only answer. Um, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Bridget because just to hear a little bit more about your upbringing and the influence of your parents. Yeah, I just have one more question about what it was like growing up with your father, Ewan McGregor. I mean, what was that like for you? Um, how did growing up in the public eye and around fame like that shape you or influence you? You know, it's it's funny. I didn't. Uh, I don't feel like I really grew up in the public eye. My my dad is and was in the public eye. He kept us very much out of it, and they had some agreement with the paparazzi or their lawyer figured stuff out so that we weren't technically allowed to be photographed with him after a certain time, um, which they obviously still did. But, you know, we weren't out there being photographed on every tabloid with him. We weren't on red carpets. We weren't at anything really where there was going to be photographers. And so we weren't put out there in that way. Um, so I just felt 
I didn't feel like I was directly in that kind of light, but I felt that my dad was, and that was clear. Um, but my, my childhood in itself at home with my parents, it was, it was not one of like, it wasn't like a Hollywood star studded glamorous thing. You know, it was just at home with my mom and dad, you know, making eggs for breakfast. Everything was kind of kept very, very normal for, for me and my sisters. Um, so, but what I do recall a lot is, you know, going to school and Star Wars was at its height. And especially being in London, everyone knew who my dad was because he's Scottish. And so there was a lot of kids at school and I, I would get uncomfortable when they would ask him for photos because I knew that wasn't, he didn't like doing it. So I have a lot of these memories where I'm very uncomfortable and very kind of nervous about people asking my dad for photos or coming up to him on the street because I was so aware that he didn't like that. So if it was ever any of my friends, I felt this kind of guilt almost that I was inflicting that on him through people I knew. Um, so that that's kind of a funny memory I have of it. But it I was born into it with him, you know, he was just kind of my dad and it wasn't this big thing. Um, and I kind of felt very similar to my other friends who didn't have parents in their in the public eye because we were being kind of brought up in very similar ways. I'd love to switch gears now and look a little bit more at modeling and how that kind of has shaped your identity. First off, how old were you when you first started modeling? I got signed to Wilhelmina in, I think, maybe 2016. Um, so that was when I first started off. Yeah, in New York. Okay, and how how old were you then? Oh, sorry. Yes, <laughs> that is that is the answer you needed. Um, I would have been <laughs> five years ago. I was twenty, nineteen twenty. Yeah. And how how do you think modeling at such a young age um affected your development of a sense of self? It's funny because I felt like I was always the oldest uh, around. You know, I felt like coming in at 1920, I was kind of on the older side, which is a kind of wild thing, really, because a lot of the girls I was shooting with or going to events with, they were they were 16, you know, 15, 16, 17. So I was <laughs> it did, it's funny because I didn't feel like I came at it at a at a very young age, but obviously I was very young and um, I. I got caught up in the whole world a bit and kind of fell for it in the sense that I was being promised all these things. It's like, okay, if you go to all these events and you do all of these shoots, then there's going to be, you're going to make some money. And, uh, you know, I was naive to what the industry is. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, obviously that's not how it goes, but I kind of thought so. And so I spent so much of my time in New York attending events. I was on their kind of more persona board, like their women's board. So I wasn't like exactly like a runway model or, or a model. They kind of would use my name a bit to get me. It was kind of more of that vibe. So I was brought around to all of these events all the time. And it was exhausting. It was, I didn't know anyone. No one was very particularly nice there. The agency wouldn't, didn't come with me or, you know, there wasn't someone there with me. And um, they'd send me out there and be like, okay, you can leave when you get your photograph taken, you know? And I was staying there alone. No one knew who I was. And they were like, you just got to go up and ask. And that felt weird to me. I was like, I don't want to ask 
someone to take my phone, like the whole thing of it. And I feel like I kind of um, could have used that time better with my friends and people that I knew. And also, you know, I, I was really, really skinny going into modeling, like very skinny. I just, I was in this very messed up relationship and I wasn't my normal weight. I was like 99 pounds. I'm 120 pounds now, you know? And so it wasn't, it wasn't my weight, but that was perfect for modeling. And they loved me then. And then I started going back to my regular weight because I started feeling better. And there was a lot of conversations like being sat down and saying, listen, you know, you got to really look out for your, they would kind of frame it as look out for your health. Um, And I was sitting there at this point, like, 10 pounds over 99 pounds you know it's like 110 pounds and I'm like really you're like my health is your priority right now um and they would tell me to lose weight I didn't I didn't fit into sample sizes so that made it difficult for them to dress me for things therefore it was going to be a lot harder to do that and I just kind of felt like well who cares like I'll dress myself and I was lucky enough where for me and maybe lucky enough isn't the right way, but I, I felt lucky from in my situation that modeling wasn't my end all be all goal because I think it would have crushed me if it had been. Um, because that's what it does. I mean, it can be so, so crushing because you know, it's so, so based on how you look and, um, that I think would have been very detrimental for me to have kept pursuing that with that kind of passion and that I I do with film. Not to say that the film industry is much better, but um, I think that's what made it easier for me is knowing that, listen, it this can all go away and that's okay because there's really something else I really want to do. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Like that's horrible and Unfortunately, it's something that most models do have to go through and it shouldn't be that way. And yeah, I hope that by the more we talk about it, the less stories like that are common and normal because it shouldn't be. Absolutely. You kind of started to answer this question um, already, but I'm just curious, what helped you discover your identity and your sense of self like against the backdrop of anxiety and being in this relationship and modeling and kind of being pulled in all these different directions like what helped you kind of find yourself amidst all that you know it's funny I was thinking about this last night as I was falling asleep that I don't think I've really come into myself until really recently I think until COVID is when I felt uh, now in my life I feel like I'm really fully feel good about myself and feel good about who I'm becoming and where I'm going because I think it's constantly moving but I think throughout all of it and from the beginning and though it it took me a while to figure out coming out of you know that abusive relationship and dealing with all the anxiety is that um I had a passion for filmmaking and I wanted to become an actor and I wanted to make movies and produce and I couldn't fall asleep at night you know just letting that go or I couldn't I had to fight for that because I knew that that was in a sense fighting for myself and fighting for for a lifelong kind of 
commitment to something which brings me joy. And so I think always having that as a goal and trying to get myself motivated in times where I really didn't want to, I think that kept me in touch with myself because I really knew where I wanted to go, um, even though I was far from that yet, you know? So my 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 hopes for a career, I think, um, is maybe that's a weird answer. I don't know. But I think that kept me going because I, I just I had a destination, you know, I don't think that's a weird answer at all. It's like um, hope for fulfillment in something that you haven't quite like stepped into yet, but you know that it's there. I relate to that completely. Yeah. Um, what advice would you like to give young Clara who's just starting out modeling? I think it would be something along the lines of because when I started out I was so discouraged. I I was so anxious and I was kind of in a very depressive place even though I'm not a very depressive person. That's one time in my life I can say I was depressed over those kind of couple of years. Um just know that it gets better and that life has so many surprises and twists and turns that like it's gonna lift you back up you know it's it's temporary these places of of kind of I don't know of unknown it's temporary and and time and age and growth really opens or answers a lot of questions when you meet people now what would you hope that they say about you I hope they would say first and foremost that um I'm a good person and that they enjoy being around me and that I give off something good. And, you know, I think that's, that's all, all for now. I just hope that people see me for who I am, which I think is, and I know is a good person and has good and good intentions and is, is nice too, you know? So I think just kind of to keep it simple, just that they feel empathy and love from me and and goodness so Clara you know I want to go back to when you were 21 it sounds like you were modeling around that time perhaps you'd seen the psychiatrist that you mentioned you mentioned you were in a relationship in which you were physically verbally and sexually abused can you tell us a little bit more about how you entered into this and what happened and one of the things I'm thinking about is you know, a lot of people stay in relationships that are not good for them, that are good in some ways, but then harmful in others. So I'd love to explore that with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I I met my ex um, when I was at NYU. We had a class together um, and I was initially very drawn to him. He was this very kind of intellectual well, which I now know is very pseudo-intellectual, but it seemed seemed like an intellectual, smart guy who was a few years older than me, had his own place, liked going to galleries, like listening to jazz. Like I was just very easily, um, I'm not sure what the word is. I was easily impacted by these very kind of surface things at that age I was like oh well this this is a change from like the dorm rooms I've been going in and the beer pong and I was like well this might be nice you know um and we really it was it was great at at the at first you know we really fell for each other and very quickly got into a relationship and um I had had a little 
moment with my ex-ex, and then, um, and then I just decided to embark on this relationship and ended my past relationship, and, um, it, it got so serious so quickly, and he very kind of soon into the relationship started asking me if I'd seen my ex. I guess he might have seen my ex pop up on my phone or something, um, and he got very, very weird about that and and started showing signs of jealousy and kind of couldn't let it go that and I I was digging myself further into the lie because I I thought he was going to leave me if I told him even though I felt like I hadn't done anything wrong and and that's when that's when it all kind of kicked off is that that one question kind of turned into this whole thing this whole big jealousy thing and that's when the abuse started. So when I look back on it, I'm like, God, that jealousy stuff was such a big red flag from the very beginning, you know? Um, and I think that's what really kind of kicked it off in a negative way, which is something that had started nicely. And what can you, just on that point, when you saw that initial expression of jealousy, what was your intuitive reaction to that? At first, at very first, I was like, oh my God, this is kind of cute because I get really jealous sometimes and now someone who gets jealous um now I won't feel guilty about getting jealous. I was a very insecure person at that time and in my past relationships I was insecure and I would get jealous about other girls. Now my jealousy wasn't going to turn out like his did, but um and it's something I've worked on personally and and I'm not that kind of person anymore. But I kind of was like, "Okay, great. So you're just like me." Um, and then it, when it became frustrating and when I still didn't, I was like, we're going to get past it. It was always like, this is going to get better. This is just like a glitch and we're going to figure this out. And there was no part in my mind that was like, Clara, this, this is not a good sign, you know? And then how did things progress after this? It progressed kind of quickly. So it started just with him kind of pestering about this question. And then he started breaking into my computer and going into my phone and trying to dig up answers. And then at one point he found a text, I think between, or he didn't find anything, but he texted me saying, I know everything that happened with you and your ex. I found it on your laptop. So I confessed everything. And that, that was really, that was really when it kicked off because then he had something to hold against me. I had cheated on him in his mind. And so I was a cheater. I was not loyal. And he at first was like, I'm breaking up with you. And in my, with, by the way, my separation anxiety from my parents very quickly transferred over to my first boyfriend when I was 15 and has been, you know, that's something I had to work on because then I had separation anxiety with men. And I was so caught up in all of that, that I didn't, I didn't want him to leave me. I was like, I need to fight for this guy. And so it was, and he, then he had me. Then I was this scared person who was going to do anything they could to get him back. And he had all of the power because he knew that because of my anxiety and all of that, I wasn't just going to be like, okay, you want to break up? That's fine. I was going to be at his door until 3 a.m. because that's the kind of crazy stuff that starts to happen is that you start being as crazy as they are in some ways, you know? And um, 
so then then it became I was living in my own apartment. He didn't want me to stay at my own apartment with my roommate because he thought that she was a bad person because she had been friends with my ex. He would find reasons for everything. Um, if I was alone at my apartment, he would make me FaceTime him so I could show him every inch of my apartment under the bed in closets. He thought I was hiding someone. Um, all of my friendships dissolved because I it sounds crazy, but like I wasn't allowed. I felt like I couldn't put these walls up to see friends. I couldn't see my friends. He, any male in my life, they wanted to have sex with me, which is the only reason they were talking to me. And then it started transferring over to work. My modeling agents were getting calls and emails from him from my phone at all hours of the night because he was mad I didn't have a plus one to an event so he couldn't come with me. Um, and then, it, you know, as I was modeling, he would call me a whore for modeling. He would say it was so stupid and unintellectual and how low can you be? Meanwhile, asking me to set up meetings with my modeling agents for him because he wanted to start modeling. So it was a lot of this. And I had meetings with directors that he would follow me to and like, you know, so it, my life was becoming smaller and smaller and he was limiting and cutting off all of these relationships um, almost for me because I was so vulnerable and stuck and um, had been broken down. He would always call me stupid or, or really attack my intellect uh, to the point where I didn't even feel like I could speak up. Like he was, he was probably right. I didn't have I wasn't as smart as him, and he would always say that I didn't challenge him. Um, and so all of these things, it's crazy because I say it out loud now, and I'm like, dude, I would have fucking slapped him in the face if he'd said something like that to me. But I didn't because I believed him, and he was the end-all, be-all in my head. I was like, I'm never going to meet anyone like him. And that's really what I believed for a long time. And tell us about the physical side of the abuse. Absolutely. So, you know, as all of it progressed and sorry, I didn't, I didn't bring that into the order I just described it in, but once the verbal stuff getting started getting worse and our fights started getting worse and, you know, then very quickly it, it turned physical. And the scariest part about that really was his complete lack of remorse after. Um, I remember one instance where we were arguing and we're sitting on his bed and he punched me in my face and I f fell backwards and landed somehow I landed on the floor actually face front and I split my lip and I was down I was in shock I was just lying on the floor and he got up and kicked me in the stomach and walked out and got himself you know some sparkling water and but never never could he turn around like there was never any remorse like an hour later, two hours later, three days, nothing. It was always on, it was always my fault. There was one instance where he, we were fighting like that and he started bolting towards, across the room towards me. So I grabbed the closest thing to me, which was an empty wine bottle and I just held it up and he stopped dead in his tracks and he just looked at me stunned. And it was this whole thing and he never dropped that. He was like, you're the violent one because you were going to hit me with a glass bottle and that could have killed me. <laughs> and so then any time he would be physical with me in the future, 
it was always excused by that one moment where I had really tried to defend myself. And, um, yeah, he would play all these mind games with me, like, you're hitting me back, or you're, you know, and I was like, dude, I'm 99 pounds, I'm this tiny little person, and you're this full-grown man who's, you know, strong. <laughs> so it it was always a way to kind of twist it, and I never got any kind of remorse from him. I mean, I think a year after we broke up, he sent me an email, which was crazy, one point that happened in our relationship is we were traveling and I found out I got pregnant and I got an abortion. And to me, that whole situation was not an emotional one. I, I'm completely aware that for many women, um, it's an incredibly emotional thing. And, um, and I can imagine it would be maybe for me now with someone that I am with someone that I really love and want to be with forever. But with him, I, I don't know. I was just like, I'm going to take the pill and it's going to be done. There was no part in my mind that was like should I keep the baby it wasn't at all the plan I was young I was I was with someone that was clearly causing me pain and although I didn't maybe make the decision to get the abortion because of how he was literally being it just it wasn't a thing so we we did it he was totally fine during that process like helpful and anyway um that was a little blip and then you know a year after we broke up I got an email from him being like our our baby would have been one years old today. How does that make you feel? And I was just like, oh my goodness. So a year later, that's, you know, I was just shocked that there was no remorse about any, like a year later, you still don't feel that remorse. And on top of that, you're going to try and turn a situation that could have been very traumatic for me, but wasn't into something that was hypothetically traumatic. Um, so I just, looking back on it I'm like listen that there is nothing I could have ever done to make that that man better for me and um and I think there was a lot deeper stuff that was going on with him than just being abusive I mean it kind of borders being sociopathic to me so yeah how did you yeah. decide to end the relationship in the end well that's where that's where the um the Lexapro kind of came in. Um, I had been in therapy the entire time with my therapist, who I still talk to now, and I had never told her that he hit me. Um, I didn't. I didn't, didn't tell any of my friends, but I I didn't even tell her when it was happening. Um, my ex also used to, you know, either hit me or have these crazy fights with me and then we'd go to bed and I wouldn't want to have sex with him and then he would start another fight about that like if I you know what kind of relationship is this if we're not going to have sex together and you don't want to be with me and I'm like well it, there was no awareness of what had just happened and why I potentially wouldn't want to sleep with him which then often turned into him kind of you know forcing it so I hadn't told my therapist any of that I was mainly just talking to her about the emotional stuff the emotional and verbal stuff um and so I've I don't think I even told her when when we broke up but all throughout that it all got really bad at one point so I flew back to LA and my mom was suggested I go see a psychiatrist for the first time I think ever 
So I went and he prescribed me Lexapro and I spent about a week in LA just with my family and I started the Lexapro, which takes a few weeks to kick in for not, not a whole lot of time though. And I'm telling you the minute, the minute that pill kicked in, um, I, I knew I had to leave him because I all of a sudden had a perspective on it that wasn't being fully driven by anxiety. Um, and by his manipulation on me, you know, I, I kind of had just by physically being away from him, being at home, being with my mom and, and my dad, and then having this, this big relief through Lexapro, I came home and I, I ended it with him. And, um, I've met that, that was like the happiest moment of my life. I, it was such a relief. Uh, he did try to break into my apartment or he did break into my apartment one time after that, um, where my dad almost had to call the cops. Cause luckily I was able to get my dad on the phone. Um, and, but after that, you know, I don't know. I just felt, I felt like the biggest weight was lifted. I felt like I could live my life. It was so exciting. I was hanging out with friends and going out and I still, like, that was just, that was an incredible time. And I didn't ever think that like a breakup with him in it throughout our relationship would lead me to feeling that happy. And that was something I wish I'd, I'd known that firstly I can be good on my own. And I was single for a while afterwards. And that was something I hadn't done since I was 15 and just being able to like stand on my own two feet and not crumble and not feel anxious about being away from someone that was huge. That was hugely empowering. Um, and although I didn't maybe deal with much that summer, it was a great summer. And then the fall was a different story. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, I'm curious about Xanax. And so for those of you who may not know what Xanax is, it's, that's the, um, brand name for Alprazolam, which is the generic, it's a anxiolytic anti-anxiety pill or a sedative hypnotic. So when did you start using it and how did you fall into that? So I actually did get prescribed it along with Lexapro, um, but I wasn't taking it then. I was prescribed clonopin, um, which is a similar, I mean, I'm sure you know more, but I think, you know, well, from what I know, it's a very similar drug to Xanax. Yeah, it's in the same class, but uh, the clonopin is longer acting. Xanax is shorter acting, but yeah. Yes. So, um, and I was taking it pretty normally, you know, I would get a lot of anxiety when I'd fly. So I would take it when I was flying or when I was having a panic attack and it was fine. And then, then the summer was over. I was back in New York and I just felt really depressed. And I, um, I just started taking a lot more. I started just taking it when I didn't really need it. I started taking a lot more than I needed. And then soon enough, um, the clonopin just wasn't enough. So my, the, the guy who would sell me weed in New York, he got his bars from a doctor as well. Um, so uh, Xanax bars. So I started buying them from him, um, directly. And so that's when it really spiraled because I had endless access and this was not like a small, tiny pill of clonopin, like I was prescribed. These were full, big bars of Xanax. And um, 
you know, it was the kind of thing where at first I would take it to fly. And then for the four days after I got home, I would still be taking it. And my Xanax usage was very sporadic, like it wasn't consistent. So over around, you know, a year or two years, year and a half that I was kind of using, it was sporadic. So I wouldn't touch it for like two months. And then it would be like a big binge of it for a week. Um, and it just completely derailed me. I became someone who wanted to isolate and Xanax enabled me to do that comfortably. And I didn't want to be social and I was flaking on my friends and I was in a new relationship with the man I'm still with now. And I was in this amazing relationship. I was so happy in and couldn't believe it was real. And yet I was still wanting to numb myself because of all the all the trauma I hadn't dealt with from my previous relationship from my parents divorcing and and just general anxiety and so I just became someone who was like a shell of a human and just was very content not being present not being aware and scared the shit out of the people I really loved the most you know so it it just yeah it just became such an easy band-aid and it and Xanax is this kind of crazy drug that it does feel really good the first few times you take it. It feels amazing. You're like, I, it's like euphoric. And then slowly it turns really dark and it turns into, I don't know, it's horrible. You know, you wake up and you're just 10 times more depressed than you were when you took the Xanax last night. Um, and I was losing myself again, but this time there wasn't a man taking my, you know, my me away or or taking my life away it was it was this pill um so I kind of fell into the same sort of um routine a bit of just cutting myself off from from life and I wasn't proactive I wasn't working on my career I wasn't doing anything I was just stuck and so how did you end up quitting and going to rehab it all happened relatively quickly. Luckily, this addiction didn't completely derail my life in terms of its general trajectory, and I was never on Xanax at work. Um, in fact, I you know I shot this whole movie in Miami for a month and a half, and I didn't touch Xanax until after our rap party, and then took it on the flight home all the way home, and that is what actually triggered me going to rehab is I just wrapped this film which I was my first time on a feature film set of of that size playing uh, a leading a leading role along with um, the other people and so it was this incredible thing and so I talked about before this like that that's where my drive was taking me that to to an experience like that and it completely you know threw me off my feet. I was, I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do this. And this just reaffirmed everything. It was like, this is what I have to do. And I didn't, I didn't even drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do anything while I was making that movie because I was getting such a natural high off of it. And then it ended. And people often talk about like a post tour blues, you know, you go on a music tour and you come back and you're depressed because it's over. And, And I hadn't really experienced anything like that until I did that. And I just was like, just immediately after we wrapped just felt like oh my god this could never happen to me again and this was so amazing and I got this depressed and so 
I got Xanax for the flight home and took a bunch on the plane, took some in Miami before I left and then kept taking it. And I went out to dinner with my boyfriend that night once I got in and was still kind of barred out, met two of our friends and had like a sip of beer and was stumbling my way to the bathroom and I couldn't stand up in the bathroom and went home and I was so out of it. And my boyfriend was like, dude, you know, what is going on? And I, um, he noticed I had something in my hand. And after all this happened, he's like, what's in your hand? He opened my hand. I had three bars of Xanax in my hand, just ready to, to take, you know, after all of that. And that's when he was like, oh my God, this is such a problem. And that's when I realized it was such a problem too. I think just having someone you love so much look at you that way was a big wake up call. And also taking a second to think, okay, you had just almost passed out in the restaurant and you're coming home and you're going to take three more bars. Like that's crazy. And at the same time, my two best friends, um, they, they stepped in, they, they felt something wasn't right with me. Um, they kind of talked to my boyfriend too, and they all kind of agreed. And those guys saved my life, man. I mean, my, one of my friends flew me to LA where my other friend was. Um, and uh, they took me on hikes for three days. And then I met with my, another therapist I was seeing during that time. Um, and I just knew in that moment, having all of the people I love the most look at me like something was so wrong. And at first I was defensive and angry when I knew that they were all kind of worried about me and talking about it. Um, but looking back on it, they were, they were saving my life, literally. So I got to LA and a week later, um, decided to, to check myself into rehab. So I did. And I think that was the only way out of it really. And also initially I felt like, okay, I need to prove to all these people and to myself that I'm going to do something to, to make this better because I don't want to lose these relationships and these friendships. I, they were too important to me. Um, so I, I really felt like I had to do something about it first, maybe first and foremost for them, but it was also hand in hand for me because I was, and still I am in love with someone that, um, that it was too, it's too special. And I was going to lose that. And I was going to lose my best friends and I was going to lose my connections with my family. And I was hurting my little sisters and, um, not, not literally, but hurting them through hurting myself. And so I think that was, when it was just like, okay, this is time to stop, you know, I'm being too detrimental. And so it was very much on my own terms. And that was that. So tell us about how things were for you after rehab. Were you able to stay away from Xanax? Um, Not completely right after rehab. Um, I really appreciated and was very grateful to go to rehab. I didn't feel like it, uh, and still don't really feel like it was what was going to do it for me. And, um, I don't want to say that for anyone who's thinking about it because it's such an incredible thing. And for the majority of people, it's, it's a life saving place. My main concern really was I need to like get myself in a good place because then I, I'm just not going to want it. And that has proven to be true. You know, I don't struggle every day to keep me off Xanax out of rehab. I, I fell back into Xanax on one occasion um, and it, it was very short lived and not the prettiest. 
Um, and then uh, I just was so done risking everything. I just was like, I just don't want to be that way. And so I just got myself into therapy. I did go to AA for a while, though, again, same thing. It just didn't feel like it really matched my trajectory and um, started working. And pretty soon after, you know, I just felt I, the thing is, is that at my core, I don't want to isolate. I don't want to numb myself. I'm a, I'm an, I definitely love being an introvert, but gen, I'm, I'm generally an extrovert. I like socializing. I like being out there and I love working. And I think pretty shortly after like this, the last stint on Xanax, you know, I was definitely in the, in the right therapy for me. I started working, I was doing a lot of short films and eventually I started my own production company and these things like I, there could be a pile of Xanax lying right in front of me. I wouldn't take any because I have stuff to do today and I want to do it and I have stuff to do tomorrow and I want to do it. And I will just, I will never, like what causes me the most anxiety right now is not being productive and not feeling like I'm working on myself and also my career. And so I, there's nothing in the world that I would allow to get in between that in terms of drugs. Um, so that's why, I don't know, my, my addiction journey has been, has been slightly different. I was 100% addicted to Xanax, and I 100% potentially could be again, but I just have these tools that I never had in my life, and I have a support system, and I have myself, which is a lot stronger than it used to be, and I have just stuff to live for and to wake up for, which I, I know I always did, but it, it's, stuff that's really my own now which is stuff that I'm creating and working on and that that keeps me off Xanax and that keeps me living my life in a very kind of a healthier way in general what um what are the most important things that you've learned from your experience with Xanax and stopping it um a few things is to you know understand that things that are prescribed to you aren't necessarily good for you and they're not necessarily what you need so do your research and um i don't know that they the thing is if you're if you're not able to take something that's prescribed you shouldn't take it and often it's too late to realize that then but what i will say is that it feels really good at first and then it turns into your worst nightmare and it makes everything you're trying to feel better about worse it's a very temporary band-aid that doesn't heal anything um and so you're you're gonna be stuck with the same things when that pill wears off and that will only want to make you take more which you know it will it will it, another thing that i really didn't know a lot about is how dangerous it is like literally it i could have died on multiple occasions drinking taking xanax taking too much xanax like that shuts down your respiratory system so fast. And I didn't know these things. I felt very invincible. Um, but you, you know, you're, you're literally putting your life on the line. Like you're playing Russian roulette with, with drugs like that. And that was something that I luckily realized I couldn't do to myself. What advice would you give to someone who is addicted to Xanax or to other like benzos? I would say that, um, 
life is gen genuinely so much better without them. Um, and that was something that was hard for me to hear. So I would just say to, you know, get the help, even if you don't want to at that moment, just see what it's about. Because as much as I didn't feel like sticking, staying in rehab for a super long time was the best thing for me, like just going there really kicked off my recovery journey 100%. So um, just try to get help. And again, I want to emphasize that that just that note is a note of privilege because it's not accessible to most people. So talk about it, talk to your friends, talk to your family, don't hide it. It's so, that's so what we want to do when we're addicted. Something is hide it away from the world, but just get it out there. You know, there's, there's so many people who are just going to want to help and not judge you. And that's what I realized. Okay. Time for the million dollar question. Um, I asked, we asked this to every single guest. If I guess fifty million dollar question. If you had fifty million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? If I had fifty million Instagram followers, I would want to tell them that we that if all if everyone who followed me woke up tomorrow and demanded free mental health care or accessible mental health care in America, we'd be much closer to getting it. Um, that this is a fight that we need to fight for because Firstly, we don't even have free health care in this country or accessible health care in this country. And mental health should be considered just as important as health care. Um, so I would say that that needs to change. And what can we do about it? And let's put our heads together and, and, and make a change. Incredible. Thank you so much, Clara. This was such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. No, of course. Thank you guys so much for having me and creating this space. And I really love the conversation you guys are, are putting out there. So I'm just really glad I was a part of it. Now, let's get clinical. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of Clara's story. First, anxiety with an onset in childhood. Second, her experience with an abusive relationship, how she entered and how she exited it. And third, Xanax addiction, all three of which are interconnected in her story. On the first, you heard in the interview that her anxiety emerged early on, triggered by the effect of her father and his substance use issues before she was six. She started therapy around age 10 in London and was surrounded by supportive parents, especially when her father became sober when she was six years of age. She later was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder by a psychiatrist. Childhood anxiety is common, and in fact, according to a U.S. study by Gandor and colleagues, approximately 7.1% of children aged 3 to 17 years, which is about 4.4 million Americans, have been diagnosed with anxiety. And the good news is that anxiety is treatable, and if you are suffering from severe anxiety, just know that you can get help. On the second, her abusive relationship. What I'm most struck by is how she's had difficulty leaving relationships because of separation anxiety. And then along comes a guy who's charming, intellectual, and older. And with the first signs of jealousy from him, she misconstrues it as, quote, kind of cute, end quote, because she has experienced this before, on her end in a different way. But in retrospect, this was a huge red flag, and his jealousy over her ex started a cycle of abuse that was difficult for her to pull away from. Let's stop here for a moment. How many of you out there have been pulled towards a relationship 
because of the hope of something and the allure of a life you wish to lead. But when you see the warning signs, it's hard to reconcile the two and simply leave. This is common. And can you imagine if you combine this with separation anxiety and what would happen? It may indeed be very hard to leave despite the toxicity and abuse. In Clara's case, it was not until she was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and started on Lexapro, which is an SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, that the anxiety fell to the wayside and she gained clarity and courage to leave the relationship. On the third, let's talk about Xanax. For those of you who may not know, prescription drug misuse is a huge public health problem. And although many people do use them responsibly and correctly, many do not. Xanax is brand name for alprazolam, which is in the benzodiazepine class of medications and is used for anxiety. Xanax, however, is highly addictive, is a central nervous system depressant, and when taken with opioids and or alcohol can lead to respiratory issues, coma, or death. As you heard in Clara's story, although she was first prescribed Xanax for her anxiety, she became hooked, and over time, Xanax had a significantly negative impact on her life. And now she's been on the road to recovery and now better able to address the underlying anxiety which was plaguing her from the beginning. We thank Clara for opening up about her story. Many people struggle with mental health issues from anxiety to abusive relationships to prescription pill abuse. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in connection, in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.